Well, good morning again, saints. It's good to uh, be able to at least share with you this morning. <clears throat> We've had, uh, I think we're running down to the end. We should be meeting in person here uh, fairly soon. I think we have board meetings coming up this week that will determine uh, when we're actually going to start. But I uh, just want to wish you all a happy Sabbath and, and pray that everybody is safe, everybody is healthy, and that, uh, that we're getting through this in a, in a very uh, safe and uh, helpful manner that we can be helping other people and, and such. Listen, before I start this morning again, I want to pray. I'd ask that you would yet bow your heads with me as we seek the Lord this morning. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come before you now, even though this is a recorded form. Father, we come to you understanding that this is holy time. Anytime we open your word and, and look at what your word says is really holy time. And Father, and so I ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us this morning. I pray that you'd be with me, that you'd give me the words to speak, and that you would take control of my mind, that I can stay focused on task here this morning. And that, Father, you'd be with every person who hears us, that they may be blessed by it but that we may be pointed to you and that our commitment to you would grow, it would be stronger every moment of every day. That we may put everything, every fiber of our being, that we may commit to you. And so, Father, bless us now this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill our hearts, fill our minds, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. But, Father, give us a heart that we can receive. Bless us now, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. The title of this morning's sermon is To Be <clears throat> or Not to Be Revived. We're going to talk about revival. And I want to go over a story of revival that took place in years and years ago. But before I get into that actual story of revival, we're going to look very carefully at the background leading up to that revival. I want to start this morning with the story of King Hezekiah, and I hope you have your Bibles, that you will go through your Bibles with me. In fact, what I'm going to ask you to do is go over to 2 Kings and chapter 20. <clears throat> I want you to go to 2 Kings chapter 20. Hezekiah was basically a good king, and he was remembered as a good king. Um, he made one huge mistake, and we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But other than that, he really he, he, he made a lot of reforms in his, for his nation. He made reforms with the worship service. He did a lot of really, really good things. Well, Hezekiah got very sick, and we're going to pick the story up here in, in 2 Kings chapter 20, and I'm going to begin there in verse 1. I'm going to be reading a lot of Bible today, so I really encourage you, get your Bibles out and follow along with me. I think you'll find it a lot more understandable, a lot more interesting if you will do that. Verse 1 says, in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And so here Hezekiah is sick. He knows he's very sick. And now he has a prophet of God, walks in and comes right up to him and says, Listen, you're going to die. You need to get your house in order. You need to get things set so, because you're going to die. Well, Hezekiah's response to that, I don't think mine would be a whole lot different than that either. I'm not faulting him for this because what he did was he, he, he faced the wall and he pleaded with God that God would spare him on this. Now listen to what he does. It says, then he turned his face toward the wall and he prayed to the Lord saying, remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth with a loyal heart and have done that what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And so there we've got Hezekiah. He is pleading with God. He is weeping. He does not want to die. Nobody can fault him for this. Very few people I've ever met in my life really want to die. And so Hezekiah feels he's got a lot more good that he can do. And he points God. He says, listen, look at what I have done for you. Look what I've done in your name, how I have been faithful to you. 
And before Isaiah can even get out of the temple, or out of the, not the temple, the, uh, the castles, so to speak, God tells him, go back. you got to change this. It says, and it happened, this is verse 4, it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days fifteen years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And so then Isaiah tells him something that he can do, gives him a natural remedy that he can do. And, and, and Hezekiah wants to know a sign. He, he's not, I don't know if he's really totally convinced on this right now. And so he asks Isaiah for a sign. And, he, and Isaiah says to him, this is verse 9, he says, This is a sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow... Go forward 10 degrees or backward 10 degrees. Now, they didn't have wristwatches back then nor clocks on the wall. What they had was sundials. And if you've ever seen a sundial, it's a round disc, a dial, and it has a, oh, like a triangular wedge on it. And they aim it a certain way. And what happens as the sun goes around, it changes that dial, and it keeps telling you about what time of day that it is. It doesn't work all that well at night, by the way, <clears throat> but it does work during the day. And that's what they used for calculating what the time of the day was. And so Hezekiah answered, he says, well, see what he says, do you want the dial to go forward or do you want it to go backward? Well, the natural way the sun, the, the sun is the way the earth revolves is that it's going to go only one way. And so Hezekiah says to him in verse 10, he says, it's an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. No, but let the shadow go backward 10 degrees. And so Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it had gone down on a sundial of Ahaz. A long way from there, in a kingdom that had not yet really risen to its full potential, where they studied the movement of the sun, the moon, the stars, and, and all these things, they focused on the celestial movements there were men in Babylon who were watching that, and they noticed that the sun went backward for that, on that one day. They heard about, about King Hezekiah and how he was sick unto death, and that his God had promised to heal him, and as a sign for that, he would cause the sundial to back up 10 degrees. And so they sent they sent envoys over there to talk to him with gifts, to talk to Hezekiah and to find out how in the world did this happen. And this is where Hezekiah made the biggest mistake of his entire life. I mean, here he's got an opportunity. He can, he can share with them the God of heaven. You know, God works this miracle. He doesn't work miracles just to have for the sake of miracles. It's to show who he is. And here they had the opportunity, Hezekiah could have pointed them to God. And think about this, had he pointed them to God, had they accepted that, they may never have come and conquered Jerusalem. This is the same Babylonians. But Isaiah knows that these people come and so he asks him a question. In verse 14, he says, And Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasure that I have not shown them. You see, what happens is these people come and Hezekiah begins bragging to them about him. Instead of pointing them to God, they started pointing them to look at what I've got. I've got all this wealth and all this everything. Look at all the gold and the silver and the jewels and everything that I have in my house. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, this is verse 16, he said, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. 
And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord, which you have spoken is good. For he said, will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? And Hezekiah died, and his son was Manasseh. Now what's interesting is Manasseh was 12 years old when he took the throne. Hezekiah was given an extra 15 years. Three years into his reign, he spawned possibly the most evil king in the history of the southern kingdoms, the two kingdoms. Amazing, amazing story that, that took place. Amazing story. Had, had Hezekiah not pleaded with God, Manasseh would have never been born. And what we're going to look at here today, or this morning, the next king that we're going to look at, would have never existed. You know, friends, the, 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 when we ask God for things, we've got to always remember the big picture. Hezekiah was not looking at the big picture here at all, and I'm not saying I would have done any different, but you see, the big picture was is that had, had he died, Manasseh would have never existed. Now, it's possible another king could have done the same thing. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we've got to make sure that whatever, when we pray, we need to pray according to God's will and let his will be done. I want you to turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 22. I'm sorry, 2 Kings, um, yeah, yes, no, I want you to stay right where you're at, I'm sorry, let's stay right where you're at. Manasseh reigns in Judah. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. I want you to listen to how evil this man was. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hafzibah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now listen to what he did. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up wooden altars for Baal and made wooden image as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven on the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also, now listen to what he did here, verse 6. Also he made his son pass through the fire. He made his son pass through the fire. Now this is a young man that was raised in a, I would, I would expect a godly home, knowing that his father was Hezekiah. And he takes his own child, his own child, and if you've ever read about how this, how this worked, this worship of Molech worked, is they had this like a, like a grill that they would put on a, on, on a fire, and they would take a baby and lay it on there, and they would listen to the screams as the baby would writhe and twist and finally be burnt to death. And that was considered an act of worship. He did that to his own kid, his own child. I mean, I can't even imagine what, what type of thought process would, would convince somebody to do that, although we do it here in this country, we do it as a matter of convenience. We call it abortion. You know, God destroyed entire nations because they were putting their kids, they were sacrificing their kids. I wonder if God is going to hold judgment on this nation for the sacrifice of children for the sake of convenience that we're doing today. But he put his, he, he caused his son to pass through the fire. He practiced soothsaying and witchcraft. He used witchcraft and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image made of Asherah and he had, that, that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. He's putting this stuff right in the temple right in the temple where, where, where God's presence was supposed to be right there in the most holy place in the, above, the, above the, uh, uh, the, the mercy seat on the ark. He said, I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers. Only 
And then here's the caveat. Here's the exception. See, God promised that everything is going to go well for you. Nobody will be able to conquer you. You're not going to have to leave this place. You will be here forever. But there is a condition on that. And it's found in verse 8. <clears throat> Only if they are careful to do according to all <clears throat> that I've commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. Verse 9 says, but they paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Did you catch that? They were worse. They were worse than the people who were destroyed. They were destroyed because of their evil lives. They were destroyed. They were destroyed because of their level of immorality. God destroyed them. He purged the land out. In fact, you can read, I think it's in Leviticus 17 or 18, where he gives the laws of morality there. And he says, listen, after he goes through all these things, all these things, it starts out with unfaithfulness and it goes to, to um, uh, intermarriage with your own relatives and it goes through all the various things, ends up with bestiality. But he says, this is what the inhabitants of the land did before you. And the land vomited them out. And if you do that, the land will vomit you out just exactly like it did the people before you. Why? Because God is no respecter of persons. Just because somebody calls himself one of God's chosen people doesn't mean that God has got to bow down to them. You see, I think sometimes even we have become infected with this once saved, always saved. And we think that, well, it really doesn't matter. You know, I pay my tithe. I go to church on Sabbath. And that's our excuse that God has to save us. Let me tell you something, people. These, the Jews here, they believed they were God's chosen people all the while. They were doing what God says was an abomination. We've got to remember that. We've got to remember that. But they paid no attention, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears were tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And that's exactly what eventually was to take place. It says, moreover, verse 16, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, besides his sin, by which he made Judah sin, in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And such was the history of Manasseh. A sad, sad, sad story. Second Chronicles. In Second Chronicles, I want you to go to the same story. It just tells it in there. Manasseh dies. <clears throat> Manasseh dies. I want you to turn over to Second Chronicles chapter 34 because we're going to look at his grandson here in just a moment. Now, I'm still reading in Second Kings. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Heruz of Jothbach, Jotbach. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. So he walked in all the ways his father had walked, and he served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them. He forsook the Lord God of his fathers, did not walk in the way of the Lord. Then the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. Ammon ruled for about two years. His, his rule was so evil that his own servants rose up against him. They assassinated him in his own place. And that left a young man to take his place. This would be the son of Ammon. Now, Manasseh was 12 years old when he took the throne. He ruled for 55 years. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
as his father Manasseh had done. <clears throat> I want you to go to Second Chronicles now, chapter 34, because it talks about more, more detail, the reforms that Josiah, because this is where I wanted to get to. I want to talk about the, the revival that Josiah caused in his kingdom. You know, think about it. You had Hezekiah, and then you had Manasseh, which the Bible says was the most evil king that they had. By the way, Manasseh repented. He repented towards the end of his life, and we have reason to believe that Manasseh was saved. And that, you know, that gives a lot of people hope that it, you, know, you can have gone a long, long way from God, and God will still accept you back if you truly repent. And so there, there's some hope in that story. Ammon did not learn from that. And Ammon was very evil. He did the very same things that Manasseh had done, what caused God to refer to as an abomination. Well, Ammon dies, it says in verse, uh, this is uh, chapter 33, um, um, it, verse 25 says, But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Now I'm in, I'm in chapter 34 and verse 1. <clears throat> Josiah was eight years old when he became king. You know, <clears throat> I want to talk about monarchies here for a minute. Because see, monarchies, <clears throat> you, are, you inherit your position because of your bloodline. They didn't have elections. Think about how this could have been different had they been able to elect a godly person to, to lead them. And so here, you know, you had Manasseh was 12 years old. I mean, really, a 12-year-old, and he's ruling a country? Now you've got Josiah at eight years old. Eight years old. You know, how would you like to have a president eight years old? You know, think about that. Of course, some people today might think we have one. I don't know. We'll have to see, we'll have to see how this turns out. But listen, I'm not trying to get political here. I, I want to stick with the story, okay? Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years. Now listen to verse 2. Think about the upbringing that Josiah had. Josiah, was a, he was just a child when he gets to the throne, but it says here, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. Now who was, who was Josiah's real father? See, his real father was Ammon. Now Ammon's father refers to him as Manasseh. Doesn't say anything about David, but here you've got Josiah because Josiah was following God. He was a man after God's own heart, you could say. And the Bible doesn't say that, but by his life you could see that. And so here he's referred to as the son of David. He says he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. He stayed from eight years old. My, just, this story is amazing to me. He says, for in the eighth year of his reign, so the eighth year of his reign, he'd be about 16 years old now. While he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. And in the twelfth year, in twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. And so here we've got this young man. He's 20 years old now. And he begins the process of cleansing the land from all the abominations that his father and grandfather had placed there. It says they broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars which were above them he cut down and the wooden images, the carved images and the molded images he broke in pieces and he made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also, now listen to what he does in verse 5, he also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Jerusalem, Judah and Jerusalem and so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim and Simeon and a as far as Naphtali and all around with axes, and when he had broken down the altars and the wooden images and beaten the carved images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. And what's interesting in this story, what's interesting in this story is here you've got this young man. He's about 20 years old. He begins this process of cleansing the land of the abominations that are in it. And he goes and he breaks down the altars, and this was actually foretold by a prophet of God. Now, you may remember the story when Solomon died, he, he left the kingdom to his son Rehoboam. And there was a meeting that took place, and the ten northern tribes rebelled against that, and they went under King Jeroboam. 
You know, these names sometimes are so similar, we get kind of confused. But you had Rehoboam, king of, of Judah, and then you had Jeroboam, the king of Israel. Well, Jeroboam did not want to see his people going to Jerusalem to worship, and so he set up two places of worship in his own kingdom where they had idols in there where they would, uh, they would bow down, they would do their services in there. And when he was there, they were consecrating the, the, the place that was at Bethel. And in 1 Kings chapter 13, we've got a little bit of story. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this. But Josiah was prophesied by this, this man of God of Judah, told King Jeroboam of, of, of Israel that a young man was going to come 300 years before Josiah came on the scene. Now listen to what it says. This is 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. He says, And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar. This is the prophet telling him now with Jeroboam right there. He says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born of the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned up on you. And that's exactly what Josiah did. I don't know that Josiah ever heard anything about this. We have no, no knowledge. That, that Josiah, that this was explained, this is what he was supposed to do. But here it is, 300 years later, this comes to pass exactly like the prophet of God had uh, told him. In fact, when you, when you read the whole story, they, will, they go through um, you know, what, what, what was done there. They told him, that's, that's the man of God that said you were going to come. Friends, listen, don't ever doubt the accuracy of God's word. You know, for a, a verse for us to focus on this morning, I would have had read, had we been in church, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1, 4, 1 to 4, he says, I will stand my watch and set myself on a rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak, it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because he will, it will surely come, it will not tarry. And you know, friends, I think that's where we are at right now, is we are in that tarrying time. You know, people ask, you know, is the Lord ever going to come? Is he ever going to put an end to this? Listen to what, what uh, Habakkuk says. He says, though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not Terry. Let's go back to our let's go back to our story. We're in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. I'm going to begin here in verse 8. It says, In the eighteenth year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the temple, so he's about twenty-six years old now. He sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah, Maaseiah the governor of the city, and Joah the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. When they came to Hilkiah the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites who kept the doors had gathered from the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim, from all the remnant of Israel, from all Judah and Benjamin, and which they had brought back to Jerusalem. Then they put it in the hand of the foreman who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they gave it to the workmen who repaired in the house of the Lord to repair and restore the house." And he gave it to the craftsmen, and it goes on to talk about what they were, what they were doing. Verse 14, I'm going to skip down a little bit just for the sake of time. So now when they had brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Now I want you to think about something. This is the 18th year of his reign. This young man has been reigning for 18 years. He's been causing all these things to happen. He has not had the word of God. They didn't have it. It was hidden. It was, it was placed somewhere in the temple. And here the high priest, they had to empty an area out. And there he finds the scrolls, what we would call today the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Verse 15 says, Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, He said, I found the book of the law of the 
the book of law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. And Shaphan carried the book to the king, bringing the king word, saying, all that was committed to your servants, they are doing. He's letting them know, listen, the, the, the construction, the repairs are going on. And they have gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord, delivered it unto the, into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. And Shaphan, the scribe, told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Put yourself in the picture here. Just put yourself in the picture. Here you've got Shaphan is reading to King Josiah. Josiah is hearing for the very first time the actual words that Moses wrote down. You know, there's power in the Word of God, friends. There is real power in the Word of God. I've seen the Word of God complete, just people simply reading the Word of God completely turn their lives over, turn them around. But look what happens to young Josiah. Verse 19 says, Thus it happened. When the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes... He was so moved with conviction, so moved with, with what he had heard, he just tore his clothes apart. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Asaiah, the servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. They were probably reading from the book of Deuteronomy, where you have the blessings and the curses. Blessings if you're faithful to God, curses if you go away from God. And that's what they, I'm thinking that's probably what they were reading. And so Hilkiah and those who had appointed went to Huldah the prophetess. Notice what they did. Notice what they did. There was still a prophet there, actually a prophetess. That means a woman. And so they went to her to find out what is God going to do. You know, brothers and sisters, when we are to make decisions... How do we make our decisions? Do we just go by what we think is right in our own mind? Or do we consult the word of God? Or maybe we look to see what the prophetess has to say. How do we go about that? There's a reason why, why God gives messages to, to his people. It's to guide, to instruct, but to keep them on the right path. And so they went to the prophetess, uh, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, the son of Hasra, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they spoke to her that effect. And then she answered them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. Verse 24. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and not be quenched. But after the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this matter, you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place and its inhabitants. So they brought back word to the king. And the rest of this chapter talks about how he restored true worship in Jerusalem. And in verse 35, now notice what's happened. They went from paganism to where true worship was once again being practiced by God's people. And when you get to verse, or I'm sorry, chapter 35, it talks about how they kept the Passover in Jerusalem. They slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. It says in uh, verse 17, it says, And the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days, 
listen to this, verse 18. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet, and none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of his reign, Josiah, this Passover was kept. The power of hearing that word of God. You know, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's the same with the way it is for us. It's the very same way that it is for us. So I want you to notice what took place here. I want you to notice what took place here. <clears throat> Josiah, he heard the word of God. You know, as I have studied various revivals that have taken place, now that's what we're talking about today is revival. As I have studied various revivals that have taken place, <clears throat> they all begin with people going back to the Word of God. I was speaking at an evangelical school. When I was in my first district, they invited me to come there. I would speak there every spring. I had three class sessions where I would explain our position on things like uh, the Ten Commandments, the, the Sabbath, uh, the atonement, the, the investigative judgment. Uh, and I got to interact with these students on that. <clears throat> and, uh, uh, but it always goes back to the Word of God exactly how it is written. One of the students asked him at the time, he says, so when you read the Bible, then you understand the Bible just as it reads. And I said, well, yes, of course. Of course I do. I mean, the Bible was not written for PhDs. It was written for people, for common people. You know, it, it's, it, you, I, I look at it where in its most obvious meaning, unless it's prophetic, and if it's prophetic, then I use the rules of prophetic interpretation that the Bible gives us. But I mean, why would we want to make something out of that that's not even in there? We don't need to add to it. We just need to look at it for what it really is. Every revival that I've studied began with reading the Word of God and applying it in a literal manner. You know, sometimes we spiritualize the whole meaning of something. We totally miss what God is trying to tell us. We've got to be careful on that. The second thing that happened is, as he heard the word of God, he was convicted by the word of God. That brought a strong conviction into this young man, and his life was patterned after what he heard in God's word. And so then he sent to the prophetess to find out what was actually going to happen. And like I said earlier, I think we would do very well to consult the prophetess to know what we are to do and how we are to conduct ourselves. Number four is he purged out of the land anything that defiled it. Brothers and sisters, if we want revival in our homes, if we want revivals in our lives, we need to get rid of anything, anything that would subvert that, anything that would lead us in the wrong way. I don't know what you've got in your house. You don't know what I've got in my house. But if there is anything in there then we need to get those out. You know where he started? He went right into the temple. He went in the temple and got rid of anything that would defile out of the temple. You know, that speaks to us today. We've got to be careful what we bring into our, into our sanctuaries, into our churches. And we've got to be careful that we're not bringing the things from Babylon into here, but that we stay focused on what God would have us to do. And we just read in 2 Kings chapter 34, then Josiah read the law himself to his subjects. Said, Listen, in fact, I didn't read that. I'm going to read that to you right now. <clears throat> this is verse 29 of chapter 34. So then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. And so Josiah goes up and he reads to them what he had heard, what brought conviction to him. Says then the Lord, then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. 
And he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Now think about that. Would you be willing to make a covenant with God today? Would you be willing to make a covenant with God today and say, Lord, listen, whatever it is, whatever it is, I am going to be faithful to your word. I don't care what the rest of the world is doing. I don't even care what the rest of the church is doing. I am going to be faithful to you. By your grace, by your strength, I intend to do this. I give you my whole self unreservedly now, every fiber of my being, I am giving to you. Would you be willing to make that covenant with God today? Because that's what happened in the days of of Josiah. And what followed that was the greatest Passover that they had in the history of any of the kings of Judah or Israel. And the fact that judgment was coming did not deter Josiah from being faithful to God. See, the prophet has told him, says, listen, this is going to happen. It's just not going to happen in your lifetime. Now, you know what a lot of people would do? Say, oh, well, it's going to happen anyway. Let's go out, eat, drink, and be merry. Let's just go on our merry way. We can do whatever we want. But not Josiah. Now, Josiah had a whole different attitude. He says, no, listen, I'm going to be faithful to God. Whatever happens after me, it's not up to me. But what happens in my life is really based on the choice that I make. And I choose God today. Brother, sister, that's something for you and me to remember. We need to be choosing God not just one time. We need to be choosing God consistently, constantly in our lives. Every morning when we wake up, we should consecrate ourselves to Jesus. Before we go to bed at night, we should reconsecrate. We, we need to be consecrating ourselves consistently because I'll tell you what, the devil doesn't take a break. He doesn't take a break. He doesn't care how people are lost. All he cares is that he gets them out of heaven. That's all he cares about. Listen to this. This is from Prophets and Kings, page 405. But the zeal of Josiah, acceptable though it was to God, could not atone for the sins of past generations, nor could the piety displayed by the king's followers affect a change of heart in many who stubbornly refused to turn from idolatry to the worship of the true God. So no matter what, it, it, this was all going to happen. That's what Huldah told him. This is going to happen. It's just not going to happen in your life. A number of years ago, for Christmas one year, one of the families that I had the privilege of pastoring, they gave me this book. They know I like history. In fact, I love history. Um, and it's called The One-Year Book of Christian History. It's a daily glimpse into God's powerful work. And there's every day, every day, you've got a different story for every day. And, you know, you're supposed to do it like a daily devotional, I suppose. I didn't do it that way. I just kind of read through it. It took me, oh, probably a couple of weeks, but I read through it. And on September 12th, <clears throat> there's a story of another type of revival. Because listen, friends, revivals just don't only happen in God's church. Revivals happen on the devil's side as well. And unfortunately, he, very obviously, he gets the majority into his revival camp. Okay? But listen to what happens here. This is, a, this is something, a different type of revival that I want to uh, uh, share with you. This actually began in 1905, which would have been 115 years ago. In 1905, the population of the United States was 80, I looked it up, it's 83, it was 83 million, approximately 83 million, 822,000. 83 million, 822,000. And the title of this is a case study in changing a nation, nation's culture. <clears throat> its membership was relatively small, but its influence continues today. Now listen, this is an article, there's a few paragraphs here, it's going to take me a little bit of time to read through this. On September 12th, 1905, approximately 100 people met in a loft over Peck's restaurant at 140 Fulton Street in Lower Manhattan. The purpose of the meeting was to strategize the overthrow of the Christian worldview that still pervaded much of American culture and to replace it with the ideas of a then rather unknown writer by the name of Karl Marx. 
They called the organization they formed that day the Intercollegiate Socialist Society. 100 people in a nation of 83 million. Their goal was to erase erase the Christian worldview from the consciousness of the people of their country. The godfather of the organization was a 27-year-old author named Upton Sinclair. You may have read some of his stuff. I know when I was in high school, he had required reading. He had a book called The Jungle about the meatpacking industry. And I remember we, that was just required. Upton Sinclair. The first president chosen was author Jack London. You may have heard of Call of the Wild, White Fang, To Build a Fire. I've read a lot of Jack London's stuff years and years ago. Also present was Clarence Darrow, the attorney. Now, Clarence Darrow was, you've probably heard of the Scopes Monkey Trial that took place, I believe it was in Tennessee. That was where you had the, the uh, 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 fundamental literal interpretation of Scripture really was what was on trial because it was illegal at that time for them to promote, um, what would you call it, Darwinian evolution. And Darrow won that, and so evolution began to be taught where now it's totally accepted in, in all of our public schools, most universities, um, even Christian, even Christian colleges and, and schools that are teaching evolution, even though it's totally contrary to the Word of God. That's what happens when you don't take the Bible literally, by the way. The strategy of the organization was to infiltrate their ideas into academia, by organizing chapters in as many colleges and universities as possible. And organized they did. Walter Lippmann, later author and director of the Council on Foreign Relations, was a president of the Harvard chapter. By the way, Harvard University, a lot of people don't realize this, but when Harvard University was founded, it was a center of theology. It was a theological school. But what happened is when liberal interpretation took over Harvard, that's when Yale started up. And, this is the, and you, you see this happen over and over. They, they start out, they have a very, very, you know, they look at the Bible in a fundamental view, and as that leaves, then another school will come up to replace them. Now, let's see, where am I? Walter Ruther, the future president of United Auto Workers, headed the Wayne State chapter, and Eugene Debs, who went on to become the five-time socialist candidate for president, was a leader at Columbia. The society grew. First annual convention was held in 1910, five years. And by 1917, they were active on 61 campuses and a dozen graduate schools. Other early activists included W.E.B. Du Bois, who would become an official of the NAACP and later a Communist Party member, and Victor L. Berger of Wisconsin, who became the first socialist elected to Congress. In 1921, the Intercollegiate Socialist Society took its next organizational step, changing its name to the League for Industrial Democracy. Its purpose was education for a new social order based on production for use and not for profit. Norman Thomas, another perennial socialist candidate for president, was the leader behind the scenes. The renamed organization's first president was Robert Lovett, editor of the New Republic, and the field secretary was Paul Blanchard, who later became an author. The college chapters of the Intercollegiate Socialist Society now became the Student League for Industrial Democracy. As members graduated from college, some entered the pulpit, Others, the classroom, some wrote textbooks, while others entered the labor movement and both political parties. When the New Deal began in 1933, they were prepared. At the time, the League had only 5,652 members, but they were in positions of leadership everywhere. In 1940, by 1941, John Dewey, the founder of Progressive Education and the League vice president in the 1930s, was its honorary president and Reinhold Niebuhr, the theologian, its treasurer. Dewey had already organized a Progressive Education Association and the American Association of University Professors. Listen, do you know what? John Dewey is a moderate, he is a father of our modern public education system. Now remember why this, this group formed themselves. They formed themselves to replace, to replace, to overthrow the Christian worldview in America. Now, I'm going to say something about Christian education here before I go on. I don't know who I'm speaking to. I don't know who's listening to this. <clears throat> but if you have children, 
and you want your children to have a biblical worldview, you can't send them to a public school. Because they will never get it there. The whole design of the public educational system, as put forth by John Dewey, was to erase that, to eliminate that. You know, we wonder why we have these horrible things that are happening. But look at the cause. Look at the cause. Now listen, I'm not doing this to be political. I'm not doing this to be political at all. Because what I'm going to illustrate out of this is how powerful a small group of people can really be. Now listen, <clears throat> I'm going to finish this up and then we're going to I'll comment on this. The League for Industrial Democracy was so successful that those who held membership in the movement or were cooperating with it could have been a list for who's who in America. Robert N. Baldwin, founder of the American Civil Liberties Union. Charles Beard, the historian. Carol Binder, editor of the Minneapolis Tribune. Helen Gagan Douglas, the congresswoman who was defeated by Richard Nixon for the U.S. Senate. Felix Frankfurter, Supreme Court Justice. Sidney Hook, the educational social philosopher. Edna St. Vincent Millay, the, pro the poet. Henry Morgenthau Jr., one of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's most trusted economic advisors. Walter and Victor Ruther, United Auto Workers. Will Rogers Jr., the humorist. Franklin Roosevelt Jr., the president's son. And Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the historian. Now this is a summary. The obscure loft in Manhattan where they organized has long been forgotten. But what began there that night permeates America's institutions and culture. Having replaced the Bible-based values of the 19th century with a liberalism based on Marxism. I want you to think about this. 100 people. 100 people who were committed to a cause were so effective that they were able to completely change the worldview of a nation. Because the overwhelming majority of this country now has that very atheistic, secular worldview. They have abandoned the Bible. Even a lot of Christianity has abandoned the Bible. But think about that. They were able to affect or impact a nation of millions. It was 83,822,000 people at the time. That's a ratio. That's a ratio of one to every, to every 838,220 people. They did not consider that undaunting. They never considered it unbelievable or un unrealistic. They believed that if they went out, that they could have enough impact, they could actually change the entire trajectory of a nation. And they did. Why? Because they were committed. They were committed. You know, I looked at the population of, Wausau, of Wisconsin Rapids in Marshfield. <clears throat> and from what I've been told, the average attendance is, Wisconsin Rapids would have a ratio of 1 to 450. That is a long way from 1 to 838,000. Marshfield's a little bit better. Marshfield would have 1 to 345. You know, one of the things I hear, and I've not heard this from either of these churches, but one of the things I've heard as an evangelist going on is, you know, there's so few of us, what can we really do? What can really do it? Well, these people didn't believe that. They didn't believe that at all because they knew their level of commitment was so great they would not stop, they would not be deterred, they would continue carrying it forward. They knew it wasn't going to be immediate. But they knew that if they kept pointing things in that way, they took over academia. They took over academia. And from there, it sifted down to where all the way down through from graduate level to undergrad to high school to elementary. And what happens now is young people from the time they enter school, if they're not in a Christian school, are being indoctrinated with a secular worldview. But you know, I look at this and I say, man, if 100 people because of their commitment, their determination. 
they could erase the biblical worldview from a nation that was founded on biblical principles. What would happen? What would happen if everyone who hears this today would stand for Jesus and move to change the worldview in our community? God hasn't given us the whole world. I want you to think about this. <clears throat> if 100 people, because of their commitment and determination, could erase the biblical worldview from a nation that was founded on biblical principles, what would happen? If everyone who is listening to this would stand for Jesus and commit themselves to changing the worldview of our community. You see, because friends, one small group of people guided by the Spirit of God, moving forward with revived spiritual renewal, having Christ as their leader, can overturn anything that any government, society, culture, or any nation can throw at them. But do you know what this group of 100 didn't do? What they didn't do is they didn't sit back and do nothing. You see, they knew and they had a plan regardless of the odds. They enacted their plan to such an extent that 30 years later, if you took a survey of the who's who in America, it was represented by this socialist society. You know, friends, Jesus is coming. Judgment is coming. You see, if, if we are inactive, if we refuse to do what God has asked us to do, how many of our neighbors and friends will end up in Christless graves. Because in many cases, the only thing between those Christless graves and eternal life is us. See, revival begins by believing the Word of God. Not that it's going to change your overall outcome, but because it's the right thing to do. Don't ever confuse God's mercy and forbearance with an inability to perform that which he has stated. Habakkuk said, though it tarries, it will come. You know, Josiah asked for a commitment. And I'm asking for a commitment from you today. Do you want revival in your life? I want revival in my life. I do. I, 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 want, I want my life to be fully, every aspect of my life to be fully committed to God. But I can tell you how you start out. Start out with the Word of God. Every morning, every morning, when you get up in the morning, commit your life to Jesus. Read your Bible. Saturate your mind with the Word of God. Pray. Talk to God. Speak to Him. Let Him speak back to you through His Word. Seek the Word of the prophets. Allow the Word of God to mold your life, to transform your life, and you can make a difference. The prophet said, though it tarry, wait for it, it will surely come. Brothers and sisters, we are living in quite the time. We're living in quite a time. Actually, we are living in a time that I believe Every single faithful follower of God since Adam has looked forward to. They long to see our day. Brothers and sisters, if that small group so committed to cause that big of a change, what could be accomplished through us? Let's allow God to do what he longs to do. Let's pray. Father, We've looked at a revival that happened to your people under good King Josiah. Father, and even though, I mean, his upbringing and everything that he had going against him, still he purposed in his heart that he was going to be faithful to you, and he carried that on through and caused a revival amongst your people that they had not seen all the while of the time of the kings. We looked at another one, Father, for a different reason and how effective they have been. Father, use us. Cause your spirit to fall on us. Grant us that latter rain. May we come to you and humble ourselves before you and, and give you every aspect of our lives. May we do that, that you can use us to put an end to this sin and suffering that's on this planet. And Father, that... 
we can be used in the closing scenes of this earth's history. Father, keep us faithful to you. May every one of us hear those words from you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Father, maybe somebody today who's listening to this has been not sure of what to do. Not sure if you could actually use them. Father, it doesn't matter the talent. It doesn't matter the finesse that someone can talk with. When you take possession of that person's life, they become a tool in your hand to do much good. So, Father, grab us all. Use us to further your work, to complete your work. Bless us with your presence. Cause your Holy Spirit to fall on us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.